When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Ranching Reboot. We have Hobbs Magaray with us with Sisters Cattle Company joining Brian Alexander, the Red Hills Rancher, and then me, CK, your favorite host. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be talking about um, what he's been doing. All right, so Hobbs, tell me your story. Tell us your story. Tell us about your history and your education. <laughs> Uh, well, I grew up in the Texas Panhandle in the in the uh, commercial cattle world. Uh, my granddad managed big ranches, and um, although my parents were no longer working in the industry, I uh, uh, spent much of my youth with him. And uh, so he managed um, he managed big ranches. When I was born, he was managing a seventy thousand acre ranch in northeast New Mexico. He managed uh, several. 16, 20, 25,000 acre ranches uh, outside of, outside of Vega, Texas. And, um, towards the end of his life, he was, uh, in the, uh, in the, the Kroll, Texas area between, you know, around kind of around Wichita Falls. And so basically he was, he was kind of my idol. His, his last name was Hobbs. And so that's why I got Hobbs as a first name. And, uh, so, you know, in, in, I didn't have the choice really. I was sort of, um, cast into that role um by you know by my name selection and just sort of the circumstances of my birth and um had a pretty normal upbringing we had you know my parents had a couple hundred acres outside of canyon texas and so Mm -hmm. outside of spending a lot of time with my granddad um that you know we were always surrounded by cattle and ranches and that that culture and and then uh, graduated high school Am- at Amarillo High School in 2005, and then went to the University of Oregon because my parents were my you know my dad it was is much older than my mom and was nearing sort of retirement age, so they decided they wanted to retire in the Pacific Northwest. So I went ahead mm-hmm. and went to the University of Oregon, and uh, was um, thrust from the uh, the the ranches of. Uh, the, the extremely conservative ranches of the Texas Panhandle immediately yeah. into, into a parade of lesbians and hippies. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> within uh, you know, within a few days of each other. So um, it's been it's been a varied experience. I graduated college in 2009. At, you know, every summer I'd go back to work on the ranches. My granddad had died at that point, but I would go back and learn from um and work for the people that he taught and he that he worked with and for and um then so uh, then in 2009 graduated and worked as a musician uh, composer and sometime um airport manager for about five six years and uh because you know my granddad always said there's no retirement in ranching so I so I took that to right. that, that I should you know do something else and so I studied music in college I actually got a degree in political science but uh but I studied music in college and was really serious about it for a long time um I I scored a lot of uh ended up scoring some really cool stuff I you know I, I wrote and, and recorded and uh 
I scored the intro to Wimbledon, the Australian Open, the French Open, a bunch of video game stuff. Um, yeah. So, wow, that's cool. Yeah, that is so, cool. I, so I was a fa- I was fairly uh, a, a moderately successful composer for a little little bit, and then um, somewhere around 2016, 2017, that all kind of fell apart. And you're not really sure why, but in in the span of about a week, we uh, my business sort of just fell off a cliff. Uh, we got evicted from our house because the the landlord had not uh, had not been aware that we it was not actually zoned for occupancy. So the county found out, <laughs> you know, we we didn't know this. And the county's like, oh, you have to leave. It's like, OK. And that and then um, and then we found out we were pregnant all like in this in the span. Of oh, the wow. Yeah. So where, where, like, where were you at this time? Where, where did that happen? In Sisters. We were in Sisters, Oregon okay. at that time. And then so we so we uh, tucked tail and went to Los Angeles in search of some form of, of monetary stability. And uh, my wife got a great job at a company called Mute6. Uh, that's sort of one of the leading digital marketing agencies on the planet right now. She was like employee number 30 something. And now they're at over 300. So uh, we really lucked out on our timing there. And while I was doing the whole stay at home dad thing, because she had mm-hmm. found sort of some success and I was, you know, a, you know, bringing coal to Newcastle by trying to be a musician in LA. Um, so logically, you know, I was not having a whole lot of success. So I was being a stay at home dad. And, you know, so it's like, God, I, having come from where I came from, it's like, really, well, what else am I going to do other than, you know, give, try to give my child the same upbringing that I had. So it was time, time to try to find some, some ranch jobs. And, you know, through all these interviews, um, I started learning about, regenerative agriculture, all, everybody's guru, everybody's book, everybody's way of looking at things and, you know, sort of began to crystallize in my mind, this new way of ranching that ought to be done. And it turns out there are not that many jobs out there for that. So we decided to um, take another leap of faith, come back up to sisters and start our own cattle company. And here we are. So why sisters? I mean, if you well, could go anywhere in the world, why sisters? What do you love about it? Well, I, a couple of reasons. Number one, we had uh, my parents are up here. And so we had some support with the kiddo, um, uh, you know, uh, one, one, two and three year old children are, you know, turn you into a homicidal, yeah. barely, barely functioning human. So having parents around to help is amazingly helpful. And, you know, I, I recognize that sisters, there was there was a business opportunity that um that I would find have difficulty finding elsewhere, which is namely rich people buying up small pieces of agricultural land with no motivation to do anything with it. So I okay. realized that I could come back here and tie a bunch of small pieces of string together to make one large piece of string. And if effectively these people just want to keep their tax credits and their tax uh, right. deferrals. So um, they're like, hey, you know, you just run some cattle out here, uh, do something with it, prove that we're using it for ag purposes. We'll show enough income to, you know, make it legit and mm-hmm. um, do your thing. And so that's what I've been doing for for three years now. I've uh, I started with uh, the only thing I had guaranteed was seven acres of dirt lot when I came up here and a little bit of startup money. But we've been able to through primarily through relationship building. Um, right. You know, just expand to a couple hundred acres and, uh, you know, as, as many cattle as we can fit on it. And it, That's that's one of the things I really want to get into, Hobbs. Um, for those of our listeners that don't know, 
I met Hobbs on social media, specifically TikTok. Um, and Hobbs, I, some of your content on there has just been terrific about how to get started and how to acquire resources and how to really bootstrap yourself up from, from basically nothing in this industry. Um, you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, obviously, nobody really bootstraps from nothing. You have to have a little bit of something. And in, in this case, um, I mean, take it with a grain of salt that, you know, my wife is able to provide some sort of income for us. And um, while we've been building this business and, you know, I live in an area where, you know, I, I judiciously chose this area for that particular purpose. So, you know, you have to apply it to your own situation. But the fundamental premise that I think can allow you to succeed no matter where you are, no matter where you're starting from, is if you fundamentally realize that nobody gives a shit about you. Okay. And if you can really take that to heart, then you can understand that the only way to get what you want is to give other people what they want. And in this case, mm -hmm. I, I didn't go to anybody and say, hey, can I graze your land? I went to people and I said, um, well, actually, what I, what I started with um, were, were a couple of things. You know, uh, the, the first guy, the first 60 acres I was able to acquire, he had turned down a few people who wanted to graze his land. And I, I went and talked to him and he said, you know, the, the only way that I would let you graze the land is if you do it in this very specific way. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, I'm going to be moving my cattle, you know between once and four times a day. And he's like, okay, well, that's, we're on the same page then. So uh, he was kind of a permaculture guy from uh, back in, from Connecticut. And so he was very mm -hmm. interested in, in this, this thing. So we hit it off right away. And then, so effectively, um, number one, I, I, I gave him what he wanted. Uh, so I was able to get it. And then number two, I started um, very, um, I, you know, I created a spectacle. You have to create a spectacle. Everybody wants to just get land and throw cows out there and then go gather them up and then profit, you know, right? But if you do something that's so far off of the norm, people will take notice. They will start to go, oh, this is very interesting. Um, and so when I'm out there with all this silly string poly wire, uh, moving these cattle bunched up, you know, two to four times a day, people are like, well, what the heck's going on there? And, you know, mm -hmm. the second piece of land I, I got was this total piece of garbage uh, land and it, but it was right next to the highway. So, you know, I had, you know, 10,000 eyeballs on my cattle every day. And so I was very oh, yeah. conspicuously, conspicuously grazing in a way that was that was very confusing to people. So if you find a way to give people what they want and also do it in a way that's sort of unusual and you make the case that you're doing something that's more than just about beef. You're about, you're, you're doing it about, you're doing it for, for first and foremost for, uh, Brian, as you like to say, e an ecosystem services, uh, service, uh, business, and then beef as a, as a side product, then people... uh, I, I can't, you can't, I can't, you can't quote me on that. Cause I actually stole that one from my dad. It's, uh, ecological goods and services. Right. Oh yeah. Well, excellent. Well, it's a, it's an Alexander quote then. There you go. Yeah, but but that I mean, but that's exactly right, right? I mean, um, 
we have this amazingly extractive view uh, instead of looking at ourselves as ecological engineers. And, and if you could, in terms of bootstrapping, if you can present yourself as an ecological engineer and not just a rancher, and if you can, and by way of doing that, you do it in this way that's unusual and really cool. Everybody wants to be involved with something that's cool, okay? Everybody likes cool stuff. And so if you can save people money on their taxes and you're involved mm -hmm. with something that they can talk to their friends about and post on social media and they can see an improvement in their pasture and they don't have to do anything they just have to sit out there and look at it then 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 that's great but i mean that's uh, what what you're not going to succeed at is is hey can i can i graze your land it, because that's immediately an extractive proposition right it's, can i have something from you and mm -hmm. uh, can i can i have something from you and i'll just pay you x dollars an acre a year Right. There's, there's, there's nothing, nothing is sexy about that. And it, nothing is romantic about that. It doesn't pique people's interest. And so if you're going, I mean, and this is why I've made so many posts, probably two or three on, on TikTok about the, the book, how to win friends and influence people. Uh, because it's, it's all about this notion. It's that nobody cares about you. And that's not a bad thing. Like, like um, one of the, one of the quotes in the book is people care about a lump on their, you know, like a, uh, people care about their sore throat more than they do a, a famine in China, right? Um, so, so sad but I mean, true. What now? Sad, sad but, but true. true. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, you have to play to people's desire. I mean, we're all vain, emotional creatures. And if you play to that, and when I say play, I don't mean manipulate. I mean, just recognize that that's just the way it is. Right. And, and um, and formulate your approach towards people for that. And, and it, you basically just end up with kind of this like, you know, uh, selfless regard. It's like, you know, I, the only way that I can get what I want is if I give what you, what you want. And, you know, that's actually self-interest over the long term. So this is fundamentally self-interested, but self-interest over a long time scale is, is interest in others. And so if you can form, if you can formulate uh, a way to give as many people as they want what they want over the longest period of time that you can, then you will win. You know, you will have people coming mm -hmm. to you. I, I, somebody like I got a call the other day um, say, Hey, I just saw your, t I found an article about you in the paper, or I saw your stuff on TikTok. Would you be interested in grazing my, you know, five acres? And it's like, it was a little too far away to justify the cost and, you know, back right. and forth and stuff. But, but still, you know, people, how many, how many ranchers have people calling them? asking, no. hey, can you graze my land? I wish I had those calls. Uh, yes. <laughs> there just isn't much coming up for, for lease around here, and a lot of it's big tracks, but I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the, I, I mean, I was certainly, uh, one of the, sometimes when people ask, you know, what's the, the, the best ranching book you would recommend? Uh, I, I think the, the most fundamental ranching book that would benefit everybody's how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie, because it's just all about human nature. And we ranchers are just as vain and emotional as anybody else. And um, all landowners are. Uh, and if you can find a way to, um, yeah, just, just get the book and read it and read it with a highlighter. I mean, that, that's really what right. And then I went, you know, I go, I go back through it occasionally and I just look at the highlighted sections and go, oh, okay, well, uh, I can think, you know, I look, I'll open the book to any random place and I'll immediately find something that I screwed up on that week by putting my, you know, my own interests ahead of somebody else's and how it cost me, you know, so it's just a constant reminder. So it's like, you just have to, you, you, you have to, you know, 
you have to be out there. You have to, you have to be in the community. You have to network and you have to learn to network. And if you right. learn to network, that's the only way you're going to build uh, a community and build a brand is by networking. Like there's a, and I mentioned it just in, in passing that I worked in an airport and what that actually right. was, was a, uh, it was an engineering firm that had bought the small local airport because, you know, the, the owner was uh, a uh, pilot. And so he bought the local airport and, you know, he actually hired me to write these grants because I had a degree in political science. So I wrote these grants and I, I over over four years, I, I pulled in like one point three million dollars to rebuild this airport. And, you know, uh, learning from him and studying under him was just like this unbelievable master's level course in business. And he was like he, 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 he had all these really great phrases. And one of them was, if you if you want to grow, you've got to go. And mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's really valuable with regard to networking and calling people and being involved. And, you know, you got to you got to be out there in the community. And I think particularly um, there's a there's a strain of rancher that loves to just sort of I'm just going to go back on the ranch. And the only time I want to see people is when I take my cattle to market or when I go in to drink coffee on the mornings. Like, the, you know, that's the only time I want to see people. And so so they really deprive themselves of the networking uh, necessity that is becoming increasingly important as the population grows around these ranches. You know, it's like, uh, you know, another guy, my, you know, my mentor there in, in post Oregon, he's, he's, he's like, you know, we're the Indians now. And it's, it's that same kind of thing that, you know, they talk about that Yellowstone as well. Right. Um, it's like, right. You know, we're, we're out on these, we're basically out on these reservations. And um, if you don't go out and interact with the, the population that is surrounding us, like it's going to subsume us. And you know, you, you have to turn that into your own benefit. So with regard to bootstrapping, like network, do things that other people are not doing, be willing to put in the work that other people are not willing to do. Like, you know, you wouldn't, you would be amazed at how many times I get the comment, you know, who has time to move their cattle four times a day? And it's like, I'm not just moving them just because I like to move them. Like I, I do love to move my cattle. It's like, there are huge advantages that come from that. And number one, right. you know, number one is I'm this crazy dude out there moving my cattle four times a day. Like that gets people's attention, you know? And, and I've, and I've reaped a lot of benefits from that. And um, so network, uh, do unusual, uh, go as hard as you can, as hard as you possibly can with regard to regenerative, be on the cutting edge. I mean, this it's like, this is the thing that uh, another thing that here, okay, here's another thing with regard to bootstrapping yourself. Um, and this is, I'll, I'll tell a story here. My, uh, you know, when my mother was a little girl, she, my granddad was managing uh, the green ranch outside of Vega, Texas, and they lived out on the camp and, you know, they had the barn and the, and the horses and the house and all that. And, um, you know, my mom got into this phase where she was asking him, Hey, dad, teach me how to rope horseback, teach, teach me how to rope horseback. And he'd be like, no, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And she wouldn't give it up. Like a week later, dad, teach me rope horseback, teach me rope horseback. Like, oh, no, um, I'm not going to do that. And then, you know, another week later, she said, Dad, teach me a rope horseback. And he looked at her and he said, Nancy, if you'd wanted to do it bad enough, you'd already done it. Right. And I think that that's an extremely valuable thing with, you know, people are people ask me on TikTok all the time, like, what's a good source for regenerative agriculture? It's like, do you not have Google? Do you not have YouTube? (laughs) Yeah. Like, just go down the rabbit hole. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Google search the hashtag. It's yeah. There's just page after page after page. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's detective skills. Like nobody's gonna hand it to you. I mean, you, people have heard this their whole life. Nobody's gonna hand it to you. But if you take action and do the work, doors will open. I mean, that's the bottom right. line. And you may have to you may have to sacrifice a lot of stuff. Like I'll tell you for I'll tell you straight up what I had to sacrifice. Like I used to play guitar four to five hours a day. Like I wanted to be like I could play the shit out of a guitar. And I was uh, much of my life was revolved around that. But I sacrificed it. And I don't pick up the guitar much at all anymore because I wanted to do regenerative agriculture so bad that I sacrificed that because that was the number one thing getting in my way. As much as I loved it and as, as important as it was to me, it was the very mm-hmm. thing preventing me from succeeding. So I had to, you know, I had to sacrifice it at the altar of the greater good. You know that, and I also had to stop smoking weed. You know, going to uh, going to school at the at the University of Oregon. Um, they, it was everywhere. And I got into a thing where I was smoking a lot of weed and, um, you know, not to say I don't partake occasionally, which is okay. All things in moderation, but, you know, I was smoking a lot of weed and I really had to, um, say, you know, like, all right, if, if you could, if you were guaranteed to succeed, if you stopped smoking weed it was so much, would you do it? Well, of course. Well then do it, you know? So that's, that's, def- that's one thing that those, those are two big sacrifices that I had to make. And so, you know, you, you won't get where you want to go without giving up the things that you already have and the yeah. things that are most precious to you. I mean, what's, there's a, uh, I can't remember the characters in the Bible where it was like Isaac or something who had to go, you know, take his son up on the, on the, the mountain and sacrifice him. Uh, right, right, yeah. Right Abraham. Line. Yeah. Right. Abraham and his son, Isaac. Yeah. Right. Abraham and Isaac and at the last moment God was like no you don't really need to do that but you have to be willing to do it yeah. you, have to, you have to be That's willing to faith. sacrifice that yeah. thing that is most precious to you in order to serve the greater good and you know that's largely so I mean with bootstrapping like you got to sacrifice you got to network and you got to push the regenerative edge as hard as you can because there is nothing special about throwing cattle out in the pasture and then gathering them once once they've eaten all the forage like there's nothing special about that nobody cares it's not interesting it's not sexy it's not romantic um and also you know that's that it's it's and, and you're playing right into the whole it's bad for the environment thing because you know it kind of is <laughs> you're degrading pastures so I hope that answers your question, Brian. Oh no, that was that was perfect. I loved it. So yeah. Let's talk about some of the some of the new and innovative practices that you're implementing outside of mainstream. Well, certainly. Um, with I, I don't know how new and innovative they are. I think um, you know I'll, I'll, everything that I do is an amalgamation of what I've learned from other people, and I've just you know learned my own little you know twists on it, how I apply it to my um, to my uh, particular uh, circumstances. You know, and, I, I suppose you're right. You know, the, the kind of grazing that, that I do and the kind of grazing that you do, it's not really necessarily new. It might be kind of new to us or new in our areas, but th- these techniques, they've been around for, for a long time, haven't they? They, Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, they've been a long, around a long time, but now we have, I mean, I don't know how, when when did polywire become, you know, like a thing? Because that was really the game. I know, yeah. I think it was uh, Joel Salatin says now with the invention of polywire, we can put a gas, a brake, and a steering wheel on that bovine. 
that's 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 well said you know and that's uh and and uh zietzman said Johan zietzman says you know now we have control of how of you know mouths and hooves with you know like we've never had before obviously joel salatin being the unbelievable marketer and um and the loquacious character that he is uh put puts it way better you know <laughs> but, uh, yeah but uh but yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, now that we have Polywire, it's just like we have this technology that that allows us that nobody ever. I mean, this is why I don't, you know, hate on you know old ranchers back in the old days. Like they didn't have it, they didn't have the thing, and it was unbelievably difficult to build long stretches of fences. And you know, that's it was everything that they did was sort of a remnant of the open range days. And right. so now, now our responsibility is to take is to very judiciously take what worked you know and also throw away the stuff that didn't you know but well you know have it in the back pocket but i think we're at a really interesting okay well let me let me stick to the point a little bit you know obviously what we're doing is we're just we are trying to maximize the hurt effect uh, and right that happening at any given time and we're trying to maximize the amount of our pasture that's resting and recovering at any given time you know that's that's the bottom line and uh, how densely you graze or how often you move your cattle, you know, it's all kind of, you know, tinkering around the edges. Once you, once you sort of get into that zone of you're moving, you know, once a day, once every couple of days, you know, twice a day, four times a day. I mean, it's like you're in that zone where it's just sort of a, a, a small, um, tweaking of what you do as opposed to you know i move my cattle every two weeks you know it's like okay well that plant has already been hit twice so awesome and um <laughs> but you know and so and so we're, we're basically we're we are working the new and sort of innovative practices that we're that we're really getting around to is just um you know i'll put it like this actually but I, I've, it's sort of abandoning the saddle in a way yeah. Um, yeah. And that's not necessarily the saddle doesn't necessarily need to abandon because I think the future, particularly in the American West, is building out the infrastructure from the center out or from the infrastructure points out. You know, obviously, there are lots of ranches, particularly here in, in the American West, the Mountain West, that have big forest service leases. Their pastures are so monstrous that they can't really um, um, justify uh, polywire and cross fencing everything at the, at this point, but they got some pastures next to the house that they can damn sure graze a little bit better. You know, that's, that's for sure. And there are, you know, and, and if you, you know, institute a 20, 25 year plan to right. start building out your infrastructure from the, from the, from the well-built out points outward, you know, that's, you know, that's, that should be the goal. And in that interim period, I mean, obviously on these big ranches, you're always going to need horses to some degree, and you're always going to need to have those skills to some degree, but you, you have to be willing to abandon the saddle. You know, it's like the, uh, the horse, the saddle, the boots, the spurs, the, the bridles, the reins, and that whole thing started as a tool to manage cattle in a completely different time and place and then it became the tail that was wagging the dog right and now it's like those were tools in service of the culture of ranching and now those tools have become the culture themselves and everybody it was my experience growing up that everybody was all about the horses all about the saddles all of the spurs all about the roping blah 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 not once in my first 20 years of working on ranches did anybody say a damn thing about the soil 
not once. Right. They, they, yeah. the, the only thing that I ever remember is my granddad making a reference to quote strong grass. Like that is it. That is the that is the compendium of soil ecology that I grew up uh, with in the in in the ranching industry. So you we, what you have to do is be willing to divorce yourself from that from that culture. And you know that would be that's easy for the average person who didn't grow up in it and is starting an organic compound in Maine or something to say, oh yeah, I don't need a you know a saddle or uh, blah blah blah. But those of us out in the American West where the real work is being done and the where the real yeah. work to reverse the uh, desert the desertifying ecology is being done like we we need to start seeing ourselves as ecological engineers first and foremost and then you know like obviously to talk to a layperson you're like oh yeah i'm an eco engineer they're not going to know what you're talking about obviously you say i'm a rancher certainly but in in our own mind in our own paradigm the lens through which we view ourselves should certainly be characterized as that as an ecological engineer. And then if you need a saddle, if you need boots and spurs and stuff to serve that, great, perfect, wonderful, use it. But it's all about, you know, are the, are the, you using the tools or are the tools using you? Because I know right now, all you got to do is scroll through TikTok just a little bit to see that the tools are using people and people are not yeah. using the tools. <laughs> And I, I think that's I think that's a difficult concept for a lot of people to understand because they've they bought into a myth and well they have to shift their paradigm right yeah right it's a paradigm right. yeah right. so what's what's one myth about you that you'd like to debunk Hobbs well what's a, a myth about me that I'd like to debunk like like a, a common uh, thought that people might have about me yeah yeah. Uh, well, that's easy. Um, <laughs> the the, uh, the one is like the, the, the common, let's see, here's the problem. TikTok only gives you 59 seconds, right? And to, to say something. And you would need to go back and watch every single video to, to sort of get the whole, uh, the whole concept. Of, of how I view myself and how I view ranching. But people will see one 59 second video and they won't go watch the rest of them. They'll go, okay, this guy hates conventional ranchers and he hates grain um, farming. Like, like, no, that's not, that's not true at all. I don't- Take me out of context. Yeah. Right. I, I came from conventional ranchers and my uncle literally died on a tractor getting ready for, for planting. Like I have no, I have no qualms with, grain farmers or conventional agriculture um what i would say is what i want to correct from people is that i very much see a future that is going to be characterized by far fewer inputs available to agriculture by no not not by choice but but by as a result of the geopolitical, ecological, and financial forces that are, you know, culminating into this sort of perfect storm that we're experiencing right now. So I don't yes. hate grain farmers, and I don't hate conventional ranchers. I would just, I would just say, and actually, I, you know, I had a conversation this morning with a young man from Northeast Oklahoma who contacted me for some school assignment, um, and I was talking to him about his operation, his 600 acres, you know, what they're doing out there. Um, and, and, and I, I asked him, I said, if you sat down and you imagine that next year, you're only going to have 25% of the fossil fuel that you have available to you right now, do you think your operation would survive? 
And he said, no. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, we'll do that. Go sit down, pretend, do a thought experiment. How would you run your operation differently if you knew you were only going to have 25% of the fossil fuel available to you? And then see if you can implement some of those, some of those changes. And um, and I, that is the number that is right there is the reason why I'm so highly critical of conventional ranching and farming practices, because they will not be a we simply will not be able to do them for very much longer. It's like planning your it's like planning your family vacation and only having, you know, 20 bucks for gas. You know, it's like you're not going to be able to make it to Disneyland, Disneyland, you know, uh, because we just simply will not have the fossil fuel inputs. I mean, I could go on for a while because as I said, I got a degree in political science and um, one of the most important classes that I ever took was, was peak oil. They at the university of Oregon in 2007, something like that mm -hmm. had a class on peak oil. And we read like 12, 14 books uh, on, on this topic. And ever since then I've been, you know, furiously interested in it and have been studying it very, very closely. And it is very clear to me that um, we are not going to have the same amount of fossil fuels within the next 10, 15, 20 years. We're going to see a serious drawback in or, or pullback right. in our fossil fuels we have available to us. You know, um, if you think about, I mean, this is an example. Well, I've just, it, it, if you look back to April and May, you see what happened with COVID yeah. and the demand destruction in the oil markets with some futures trading negative. And what kind of a right. long-term disruption okay. that has in in the energy markets? Right, and the, the the energy market, the the oil companies have to make money. You know, you can't just and they have to make money, but at the same time, the consumer has to be able to afford that oil, right? And right. So it has to be in that sweet spot where it's profitable but also affordable. And you know that was. The, and that is completely defined by the the uh, the amount of money that the oil industry has to spend to get the money to get the fuel out of the ground. Right. Um, the, if you look at the, the profit and loss sheets from these fracking companies, they have been zombie corporations for five, seven, ten years now. Ever since 2008, the only reason they've been able to survive is because of the, you know, uh, uh, ground, the, the ground level interest rates like. You know, Jimmy, like what were the interest rates during Jimmy Carter? Not, not that long, like 40 years ago. They're like 18, 20, 25 percent, you know, and now yeah, you and can't. That, and that led to a farming crisis and uh, mm -hmm. a bubble crisis of, a, of an entirely different kind. Sure. You know, sure. And but that, but, you know, that was but now they can't bump it above two percent without the markets freaking out, you know. So we're in this we're in this weird phase where we can't basically what's going on is that we cannot uh, facilitate economic growth with easily extractable fossil fuels anymore. And we can only facilitate economic growth at this point with printing fiat dollars and, and increasing the amount of debt. Like that's the only way we've been able to facilitate economic growth for the last 10 years. And um, up until that point, it, we were able to facilitate economic growth with increased energy availability. And then it started sort of bumping you know they call it the bumpy plateau where it's you know it tries to rise can't do it reaches critical resistance and dips until it's cheap enough where people can afford it and then it rises again and hits critical resistance and dips they call it the uh, bumpy plateau and once that mm -hmm. happened 
we were struggling to increase economic growth. And obviously everybody in Washington is like, we got to have economic growth, which is just an insane paradigm in itself, which is a whole different. Right. But, um, but we have to give tax shut. We have to transfer wealth to Wall Street. <laughs> so we'll do- donate to our campaigns. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it's just, it's just, a, it's, it's a horrifying, you know, the, the financial model that we're on right now is, and you know, have been for a long time is, is just a, it's a horrifying thing. And it's, it's, um, it's really strange. And, you know, we are kind of going down a rabbit trail here, but, you know, we talked about interest rates back in the Carter era being super high. And then there was commodity price collapse, which caused a lot of guys in the farming and ranching industry in, in my area to go out of business. And mm-hmm. you, you, you made an interesting comment and I, I have nothing to challenge you on that. If interest rates go above 2%, that's going to cause a lot of energy companies to collapse. But the flip side of that with interest rates being held so low is there's no money being invested in, uh, in pension funds because there are a lot of like public pension plans that kind of were predicated on a seven to eight percent return on interest and now they're getting two percent um so we're, we're seeing a lot of a lot of pension funding problems and i think that the next one of the next big bubbles is is pension fund bubble. but uh, if we don't want to go down that road get too much further down that rabbit trail you know there's always right, editing well, where we can keep going uh if we want let's let's try to circle it back a little bit towards ranching though Right. Well, so how, just, just, just to, just, well, just, to, just. I mean, basically, the idea is that we're holding a wolf by the ears right now, as Thomas Jefferson would yeah. say. Right. That. I mean, that's yeah. that's really it. We're just holding a wolf by the ears, and we're going to have to turn it loose at some point. And when that happens, farmers and ranchers, in particular, better have really thought hard about how they are going to structure their businesses so that when they have less fossil fuels available to them, that's that's the basic overall idea. Right, and it's not that. It's not that peak oil says that overnight oil is just going to end. It's right. that at some point in the near future, oil is going to rapidly become much more expensive. And it's going to be almost a geometric progression as far as the, the increase of price. Right. Because the difficulty of finding it and, and the increased demand from the ever-increasing population of Earth and ever-increasing industrialization. Right. Exactly. Right. Nail on the nail on the head for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we've now that we've covered a sufficiently apocalyptic uh, asset. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with a rancher becoming self-sufficient. I think I think some of the most successful ranches have learned not to be conditioned into like buying into the marketing where they don't need to buy seed, they don't need to buy fertilizer. Like if they're just managing differently then they're getting the same or better returns by being self-sufficient and not having to rely on fossil fuels or outside sources to bring into the ranch and reducing their overhead by doing that too. Right. I mean, as Brian likes to say, I mean, it's just as, 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 as effectively as, as efficiently and effectively as you can deploy solar energy. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the, one of the questions I have down here is, to poorly describe what you do for a living. And I'd yeah. like to go first. You already, you already kind of did. Um, my dad came up with this back in the 80s um, after his first trip to ranching for profit. Um, he said that he was a solar commodity broker. And I think I was like 
10 years old at the time and he's telling me this and I'm looking at him like, what does that mean? But I get it now because, you know, Hobbs really were in the same business and really, you know, we're in the same business as, 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 as corn soy farmer or the guy that makes alfalfa hay. We're in the business of capturing sunlight and turning mm-hmm. it to protein. Right? Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely right. I mean, you, you want to, uh, like, my, uh, my daughter has this set of uh, toys for the bathtub, right? And so it's like you plug them on the wall and you try to, you pour water in the top. It's, it's like these tubes with wheels and, and gears and stuff. And you try to get the water to go through as many of the different layers and turn the wheels and activate the things. And before, you know, you want it to, you know, hit as many of those little tubes before, before you hit where the water gets back into the bottom of the bathtub. Right. And that's, you know, that's, that's kind of how I see um, it's, it's we're we're trying to deploy that solar energy in a way that it makes its way through as many possible processes um, before it's kind of not necessarily lost, but, you know, incalculable. Right. Uh, so it, as, as many of those, those ecological processes as we can funnel that solar energy through, you know, I, I think they, they, I mean, that's as, if we can maximize that process, that's, that's what I do. You know, as I, you know, I'm just a kid playing in the bathtub, just happen to be using solar energy. Right. And, you know, we said earlier that polywire and reels have allowed us to put a gas, a brake and a steering wheel on that cow. And the metric I like to think about is harvest efficiency how much of the grass that I am growing every year based on growing days of sunshine and rain, how much of that forage am I effectively consuming and how much am I stockpiling and how much am I wasting? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like how, how much of that, there's just, there's just one of the, the amazing things that I've sort of spent a lot of time thinking about is, is, is simply the notion that that grass like it grass wants to be eaten right i mean you look at the grass plant and what is a grass plant doing to protect itself right i mean like nothing <laughs> it, it's not trying to protect itself at all so it's it's reasonable to 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 speculate that like it has worked being eaten into its overall survival pattern right and so mm-hmm. when you, like it needs to be broken down, it's like what 60% cellulose, right? Nothing can break that down except microorganisms, which are found only in the soil or the rumen of a ruminant, right? Right. And, and right. conveniently when the, when those herds w- wash by, they're, they're uh, putting a big uh, dose of microbes right into the soil with their poop, of course. So, I mean, it's like that, and that's most effectively cycling carbon in the ecosystem. I mean, so it's like, I mean, that flies directly in the face of the, the old notion of take half, leave half, right? I mean, it's, um, it's that, that's sort of been the mantra of ranchers for, for many years. And, it, and I'm sure it served its, its purpose in some regard to, you know, to prevent right. people totally raising their, their uh, pastures to the ground. Because, I mean, if you're, if you're doing a big pasture grazing and you're not moving your cattle, but once every, you know, two or three months or something, you graze the ground, like you have like real problems you know so right. take half leave half is is kind of everything boiled down to the absolute simplest thing they can say yeah to motivate it's, people right. to just move their cows yeah yeah right yeah i mean i can i can certainly i can certainly see that uh 
and I think the problem with that is is that's like the lowest common denominator. But it's not. Yeah, it's not truly. Yeah, it's not truly like you're taking half. Like you're using half, but half of that is actually going to trampling to organic matter. It's not all just what the animal's eating. So it is a concept that I think is misconstrued, or it's just outdated almost. And it's what and it's what half is being you know it's not like they're going to stop halfway and up up right it's like what plants are they going to eat like obviously they're going to they're going to hammer the uh the most desirable plants and the most well, most desirable half the desserts right yeah leave the desirable ones alone and then and then you know you wake up twenty years later and you're like oh my god well where all this cheatgrass come from it's like full no duh like. <laughs> Like, obviously, it came from you allowing your animals to selectively graze. And I mean, the bottom yeah. line is, I think that the thing that people need to focus on uh, a, a lot more is, is, the, is the concept of non-selective grazing. Uh, I think that, you know, non-selective grazing is, is just such a, it's so important because it touches on all of the aspects of, of, of what you need from your cattle and your land management, right? I mean, you have, you, we, we have a, 150 years or probably longer of these baby cattle that we're allowing to just go out there and pick the, pick the orange chicken out of the buffet and then, mm-hmm. you know, leaving, leaving the Brussels sprouts alone. And so we have these, um, these cattle that are so difficult. Uh, they're hard keepers, you know, and I think our, much of our cattle industry is characterized by these hard keepers. And so then to try to solve that, we get, we get these EPDs, right? And so then we try right. to, you know, try to tinker around the edges with these, cal- these scientific calculations instead of just going, well, 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 which cow, which cows are doing really great on your, on your land in, uh, on less than ideal conditions. All right. Those ones, well, let's, Let's take some bulls out of those ones. Let's take some replacement heifers out of those ones. Like your land is telling you what to do instead of us conveniently trying to worship the size of our own brain and figure out how we can calculate these EPDs <laughs> and, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, God, it's, it's, it's so simple. We just, you know, we were just so overcomplicated it. But I mean, the bottom line is like non-selective grazing, I think is extremely important. You'll immediately see, I mean, Brian, you can talk to this all day. I mean, you'll immediately see which cattle can handle it, which cattle can't, and which cattle deserve to be um, proliferating their genetics upon this planet. Oh, absolutely. But the thing I think that is important for people to understand is selective grazing, non-selective grazing are, are two different grazing strategies and both can be contextually appropriate depending on your environment. Can you talk more about that? Because I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I, I selectively graze, but only with my Finnish animals. Like I don't, like, uh, it. What, what would be an environment, a context that you would say, like, okay, here's these mother cows, and I'm going to allow them to selectively graze. Like what, what, like maybe cat, like calving season. I use, I do, I do that during calving season, right? I'll give them, you know, a week at a time during calving season, but outside of that. Oh, like. At this time of year, I'm, I've kind of backed off my daily moves and I'm at really low density and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a very selective grazing scheme, letting them go around and find the, find the good bits because I don't have a lot of good cool season grass in most of my pastures. So I'm more focused on warm season grass and then um, next spring and next fall, I'm going to focus on trying to develop some cool season grass in some areas. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there's a time and a place for for different grazing schemes 
throughout the year. And, and like I said, you know, it's, it's, it all depends on context. Um, you know, where I'm at on the brittleness scale, as far as temperature and humidity and, and growing days of rain and soil type and the types of plants I can grow are going to be completely different from where you're at or, you know, some of the other guests we have lined up. So I just have to say, you know, that management needs to be contextually appropriate for your grazing environment. Well, yeah, and also your, and, you know, you know, your infrastructure certainly. But you know, would you say that that you know next year you're gonna you're, you that the pastures that you're on right now will have some degree of non-selective grazing? Oh yes, yes, and, and well, they're I mean, definitely on an improving plane. And we, I don't, yeah. I can't see the plateau, and the plane is definitely a, a trend of improvement. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that I get, that's, I mean, that's what I, one of the things that I said in, in one of my videos on TikTok, right. It was just like, I mean, you don't have to non-selectively graze every time, but it would be right. good if you could do that like once a year, make sure that, you know, if, if you can, if you can visit non-selective grazing upon your pastures once a year, then they will, they will improve. I mean, certainly um, that's, there is no better mechanism as far as I've been able to tell for improving your pasture than giving it an annual non-selective grazing. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, absolutely. There are times and places and, you know, like uh, if it's, say it's rainy and mucky, obviously you don't want to do non-selective grazing because you'll just pug your pasture up and, and wreck it. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, the, I think that the thing that, that Brian and I are, are dancing around here is just the notion like you don't want to be married to an ideology, right? You don't like, and I'm, I'm not married to the ideology of non-selective grazing, but I am, but I do think that there are, uh, that, that is, I think selective grazing is over-practiced and non-selective grazing is under-practiced. Right. So I lean towards the uh, evangel evangelizing of uh, non-selective grazing, you know, because there are plenty of people doing selective grazing out there all the time and it just really doesn't, um, and, and, you know, obviously it is important to, to articulate the, the contextual right. necessity of, of your grazing, but, you know, look for, what I'm saying is look for opportunities where you could be non-selective grazing at the appropriate time of year, and you will find that your pastures will improve as long as, you know, oh, you don't yeah. have 1600 pound um, cow that, that you're trying, that you're trying to keep in good flesh. Wow. So, and I had a, you were going on and I thought about a great question and then I, I forgot it. So we'll just go on and maybe I'll remember to circle back. Oh, I remember what it was. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about selective grazing and non-selective grazing and, and, you know, you and I know what we're talking about. So why don't you go ahead and define that for the people that are probably listening to this and are hearing those terms for the first time. So sure. tell us, and, uh, tell us what you mean. Tell us what selective versus non-selective means to you. And, and talk a little bit about where you learned that. Non-selective is, is effectively enforced grazing of all of the plants in a certain area, right? And, mm -hmm. so you, and so you accomplish that by bunching your animals up densely enough so that the competitiveness rises to the point where they don't pass up on anything. Um, right. obviously, obviously, selective grazing is where they, get, they have enough uh, uh, enough area and low enough competition level that they can afford to pick and choose and right. um, pass up on things. And obviously during a selective grazing regime, you will, 
the, the most palatable and desirable plants. Oftentimes the plants that you want to proliferate are the ones who are going to get hit. And the ones that you don't want to proliferate are the ones that are going to be passed up and allowed to, you know, say go to seed or allowed to strengthen themselves or what, or what have you. But, but basically non-selective grazing, which I, you know, completely learned, um, from, uh, Johan and Jaime, uh, Johan Zietzman, the Zimbabwean, and, and Jaime Elizondo, the uh, the Mexican, and who uh, lives in Florida now. Um, but yeah, basically, I mean, I when I was when I was sitting at a counter doing the whole um, uh, uh, Mr. Mom thing. I don't know; it's probably not politically correct to, think, to say that now, but but doing the stay at home dad thing. Um, uh, you know, I, I found out about Alan Savory, saw his, his TED talk and then read his book. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then somehow I came across uh, Zietzman's book after that. And I was just like, Savory, whatever that, you know, um, <laughs> although you know, I, Savory did an unbelievably amazing thing for grazing. I like nothing against Savory. But oh, when, I, when, I read, when I read Zietzman, I was just like, oh, my God, this guy is a genius. And um you know, it's like, I just, I, the way that he, you know, just turned ranching on its head in my mind uh, was just in, incredibly valuable for me. And what, and his whole, uh, his, his, one of his big practices is non-selective grazing, you know, with the mature mother cows. I mean, he allows selective grazing with his heifers and your finished animals. I mean, yeah, that's no problem. They should put on weight. They should serve you and they should uh, make you money. And if, especially if you're going direct to consumer, you know, you have to find a way to balance that. And I think Jaime has actually done, uh, taken it the furthest in, in terms of balancing the, 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 um, the herd that needs a little bit more TLC and, and the mature mother cow that, that he heard that he uh, grazes quite hard. So yeah, non-selective grazing in short, it, it forces them to eat everything um, and mm -hmm. selective grazing allows them to pick and choose. Okay, good. Thanks for, thanks for breaking that down. Well, so, what did I, did I miss anything, Brian? I mean, I, I would love to hear <laughs> your, your thoughts on that. Well, no, I, I, I've done a lot of grazing in the last couple of years, a lot of strip grazing, and we've kind of bounced. Mm -hmm. I kind of like to stay in a daily move where I'm marginally selective, just kind of riding that line between selective and non-selective. You know, I think once you get towards that non-selective, you have to be, you have to be really precise in there because if you're just a little bit too small, there's not enough feed for everybody. So I like to allow for a little bit of wiggle room in there. Yep. So I might not be as, as totally non-selective as, as somebody in a different context with, you know, a more consistent pasture or more consistent forage. Right. Absolutely. But, I mean, and you know, it's like, you know, this, it's, it's an art, right? It's not, I mean, this is not, this is not a, a hard set set of rules. This is, this is, right. you know, you're the, you're the, you're the director of the orchestra, I think is what Jaime likes to say. And, uh, and, and that's exactly right, because, you know, sometimes it's a little too loud, sometimes it's a little too soft, sometimes the uh, brass comes in early, and sometimes the mm -hmm. uh, woodwinds come in late, you know, so you gotta, you gotta balance all of that stuff, and, you know, well, by God, if you're given a little bit of wiggle room, um, that's, that's still, you know, a million times better than the days of, you know, the old open range, you know, uh, grazing practices i mean we're we're what this conversation is is we're just you know we're splitting hairs right now compared to <laughs> right 
compared to what you know the 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 width of the actual grazing spectrum you know we're just like talking about like the you know half of a percent difference here you know so i mean basically anybody who's listening to this is going to take away is just going to go look at their pasture and be like oh do i maybe i could do daily moves instead of weekly moves or something like that and just every step in the right direction is going to improve and people will people will walk right up to that edge of what works for them in terms of their schedule, in terms of their infrastructure, right. in terms of their comfort level, they'll walk right up to that edge. And that edge will, will serve them and the ecology much better than it currently is. I mean, basically we're just trying to get people to go, you know, is it, maybe, maybe there is some room for improvement here. You know, maybe that, you know, maybe we can, maybe just, just, just asking yourself is, is the way that I've been doing things, can I improve on it a little bit? And when I say improve, you know, um, am I willing to cast off certain elements of my personal and inherited mythology that would mm -hmm. allow me to make more money, improve my forage in my ecosystem, but, but still allow me to preserve my heritage and who I am? Because that, I mean, that cannot be understated. Like ranching, there is no other um, there is no other occupation except maybe like policemen or firemen where what you do is such a huge part of your personal mythology. Like accountants aren't yeah. like, you know, mom, daddy did it this way. So I'm going to do it this way. I mean, it's like, no, the tax laws have changed. So, yeah. so I got to, you know, shift my practices here. So, I mean, but so with ranchers and farmers in particular, it's very difficult because the way they do things is interwoven into the, into the lens by which they view themselves. And once you're getting into the realm of talking about how people view themselves, like you're in, you're in dangerous territory, you know, and mm -hmm. it becomes an ego. Right. Then, then when you challenge someone's paradigm, they take that as an attack on the ego. And I want to, I want to yeah. relay a quote right now, um, right at a year ago at the event called soil health, you Ray Archuleta from, uh, understanding ag was there and ray said the only compaction problem on the farm is compaction of the mind mm -hmm. so open your well, mind to I, a new paradigm right so i mean i i'm i'm actually interested on in the um how that quote relates to the actual physical compaction is he is he saying that like compaction is really not that big of a deal yes right you okay, know, if that's you right. have healthy d i mean it it's it's taken two ways and i actually questioned that night at dinner you know it didn't you take it two ways compaction isn't a problem because if you're grazing properly and have a good uh, polyculture of plants yeah. it'll fix itself you know you'll have those deep-rooted plants that over time will right. go down and penetrate that hard pan break it up and start you know, some aggregating the soil yeah and the perception that, that is a problem only exists in the farmer's mind and sure. that's an extension of ego right because yeah, it's absolutely. so hard to accept that you know it's so hard to accept that it's not that we've been doing things wrong for 60 years. It's that we haven't tried to learn a better way in the last 60 or years. Un or unlearn things. I think that's a huge one I've been working on personally too, is I have to unlearn some behaviors that are just naturally rooted and like uh, you'll be better off for it. Like uh, where you're saying like not taking things personal, like about like 
um, I think that's something I've had to learn is like, it's not really about me taking things personal. It's more about uh, just accepting that this is something that we need to change or fix and then not think that it's like a, a personal attack on, on me as a person or how I, how my ranching um, management schemes are with, with, with other ranchers. And so I always, when I'm working with ranchers or just people in the community, I have to like kind of just don't care about that. I don't care about myself that way because then we can work faster and um, get through these barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's that, uh, that sort of <clears throat> puts you in the, the, uh, the ranks of the rarefied individual who can, uh, you know, shed, shed the uh, perception of self right. to agree to, to improve. And, you know, that's, that's, yeah. That's that's you know that's amazingly difficult for you know a, a testosterone poisoned you know hard <laughs> Arizona cowboy or whatever you know and and you know nothing against those those people are, are amazing you know the the things that 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 the, I mean like uh, the guy who I worked for in um uh when, and during my summers in college is a guy named Rex Green and his dad Tom Henry Green ran the you know managed the ranch but Rex was his son about twenty five and you know, Rex basically taught me everything I knew about, you know, riding, uh, or starting colts, uh, how to rope properly. Um, uh, you know, that, the, the traditional cowboy way. And, you know, a few years after I left, he and his team won the, the world championship ranch rodeo there in Amarillo. Like, oh, wow. like, like I will never be able to be as good of a cowboy as this guy. Like ne it'll never happen. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and, so there, so I, I have this massive amount of admiration, um, for somebody like that, but if they, if somebody like that could then, you know, attain this transcendent state of being able to shed that and, yeah. um, move into a, a, a position of viewing themselves as an ecological steward as the, as mm -hmm. a, uh, as opposed to a cowboy slash slash rancher, like, then, then you know you would then that that's like ranching nirvana right there you know so yeah like i mean the the, uh, the i guess what i'm saying is those those super uber punchers like those guys are prime <laughs> they're prime to like be be the future that we need in ranching like if you can just like take as much pride in growing grass and improving your soil as in how you throw a loop like that's yeah because because the the uh, the organic compound, you know, uh, people in in you know Maine and uh, and in you know Minnesota or whatever, like that, like those guys are doing amazing stuff. But they will never be able to to cowboy, especially if they didn't you know grow up in it and if they've started late. And so basically, but the but the cowboys can always become ecological stewards. So yeah, uh, what, what I so what I'm saying is, and, and it may be a little insulting, and I don't mean it to be that way, but like all of these amazingly skilled cowboys who are talking so much shit on me on my TikTok, like I'm like, you guys are supposed to be the saviors. Like you can, yeah, you, you can be the ones who you know take this to the next level because you know we're never going to be polywiring all of our pastures at least in the next you know 50 years. So we're going to need you guys to be cowboys and to be bad, the badass dudes that you are, but we also need you to be ecological stewards, you know? Yeah. And, and so we're, we're slowly moving towards that, but you know, um, but it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a battle. Yeah. It's, it's an uphill battle. 
and I think you and I are both on the front lines and it, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to kind of watch how everything unfolds. Yeah. So, so tell me what has been your biggest failure so far in the ranching industry, the cattle business and what has it taught you? Well, the, uh, my biggest failure thus far, I mean, the, uh, my, my pine needle abortions I'm dealing with right now are kind of a, kind of a bummer. That's for sure. Um, that's, you know, I, the, the, the biggest failure I've had in ranching so far is, um, oh man, that's, that's a tough one. I, I think I've been kind of lucky. Um, well, here, here's a, here's a, my biggest failure. I think, you know, to, to be perfectly honest, I think the reason on the same, same, uh, same vein that we were just discussing, I think the reason why I've become a, a, a good grazier is because I wasn't ever a very good cowboy. I mean, I, I, mean I, I can, I can, I can do the cowboy thing, but I was never like, like, yeah, let's go to a roping, you know? I was, <laughs> yeah. I, I can empathize with that, Hobbs. I'm right. useless on a horse and you hand me a rope and I'll just start tying square knots in it. Uh, there you go. I mean, that's just like, I can, I mean, I can do those things, but I will, but it, it, but I, but my biggest failure is like, I will never be as good of a cowboy as my granddad. And he was, he was legendary. He was like, he was a legendary dude. He's one of those dudes when he died, you would call somebody in, a, in another state and they'll say, all right, well, we'll spread the word, you know? So um, he, he was a legendary dude and he was the perfect dude for his time. And, but I think that being out of the industry, my, I failed out of the industry effectively when I was like 22, something like that, because, you know, it, it, it didn't interest me to the degree that I would continue doing it. And, and then I, in the industry that I knew was that commercial cattle world. So I, so I failed at being a conventional rancher and it allowed me to succeed once I re-entered, you know, with this new yeah. paradigm. And um, other than that, you know, I've, I've been really lucky with my networking ability, like you know, knock on wood, my, uh, my mentor, uh, and who, like, I talked to him, I don't know, four or five times a day, I'm going out to help them, uh, not four or five, I'm sorry, four or five times a week, that would really irritate him if I called him four times a day, um, yeah, he, uh, he, you know, he's, uh, he's, uh, as I, as I said, you know, runs, uh, 400 mother cows, a big forest service lease, and he's also a large animal vet, so I, you know, I, I would, I would call him all the time and be like, yeah, is this the beginner, beginner rancher's hotline, you know, and, uh, and so it's like, so I, I've been able to avoid a lot of wrecks just because I have him on sort of speed dial. And right. I think that, that goes to the importance of having a really good network. And that goes back mm-hmm. to how to win friends and influence people. And this notion of, of personal mythology actually really plays into that because if you can, the way to, uh, uh, the way to get people to like you is if you validate their personal mythology. And so you yeah. find those people that you like and the things about them that they that they clearly take a lot of pride in, you validate that. And don't do it disingenuously like, you know, something that you think is stupid but they love and you, you know, that's like that's that's disingenuous. You don't want to do that. But things that you admire about that people that about people that they clearly take a lot of pride in, like like don't take any shame in pointing those things out like like i you know like one of the things that he's done that i that i never hesitate to to comment on because i i am just so in awe of it is that he he figured out um on his own the appropriately uh, 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 
appropriately adapted uh, frame size for um, this part of the world where, or just, you know, or everybody else, um, you know, has a cow that you get lost in when you're doing a rectal exam, you know, yeah. he, has these, yeah. he has these more, you know, moderate framed animals. And I'm like, like, how did you figure this out on your own? This is amazing. Like I had to read books to figure this out. He figured out. And so in doing so you validate people's personal mythology and you, and you, you express to them that you appreciate what they have done. And like, you're, you're in a, in, a, in effect, you're saying, you used your life well and that's what people love love to hear and if you believe it which is the only time you should validate that then it will help form a really strong connection so you know um i have a, i have failed some but i but more importantly i've been able to avoid failures um by creating strong connections obviously um i failed by allowing my cattle to seek cover in a pine in a pine lot i'm like okay i did a lot of reading on it um, uh, the, the literature was like, okay, they need to eat two to three pounds of it per day, uh, for multiple days in order to really affect them. And I, you know, I did my best, you know, judgment of how much pine needle access was in there. And, you know, I was like, okay, I think they'll be fine, but I was kind of wrong. And I've, I've lost one already and I'm probably going to lose another one. Two's not bad. We'll see how the, we'll see, we'll see how the rest of them go. So, um, how that has how that has influenced me you know ultimately what it has shown me is is kind of the uh it's one of the weaknesses actually of the leased land model if you don't have a permanent land base and you have to if you have to constantly sort of shuffle things around then you're kind of making do with half measures and that's not mm -hmm. a permanent solution so um you certainly want if you're going to do on be on a leased land model you want to get as a long of a lease as you possibly can that's you know super important um so that you can kind of make it quote your own because you know as greg judy says the the minute that you're on somebody else's ground you're in the beautification business and um that's you know it's absolutely true and so if you can um show people you're beautifying their land then they will give you much greater latitude to make the improvements that you that that you need to make and then you know maybe you can you know uh cut down some of the pine trees or you can, you know, remove some of the lower branches or whatever. And in, in, but to the same degree, as Brian was saying earlier, it's like, you know, we're, we're trying, we're doing everything that we can to select cattle that are appropriate for our part of the world. And you know what, my part of the right. world is dominated by pine trees. And, you know, there's got to be some epigenetic factors that, that uh, contribute to whether they, those animals are survivable or not. So, you know, I, I mean, uh, Gabe Brown is another great example. It's like all, he, he had four years of failure and it taught him basically everything he knows about regenerative agriculture. I mean, that's the first chapter of his book is his first four years of failure. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, let's see what other, other failures that I've, um, you know, I think those are, those are pretty much the main, I mean, I am definitely, um, there have been a couple of periods where I've pushed my cattle too hard and had to back off and then really up their protein, uh, uh, content so that I could get some body condition back on them. Okay. So, but I you know certainly yeah. I think there's, there's some value in knowing where that line is. Um, and, and I uh, think that's part but, of that danger of getting in that non-selective regime, because you, if you miss that target by just a little bit, you know, you could hit a protein deficiency or an energy deficiency in their forage. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, I, but I, I will say, I think that has been valuable um, that, 
that I've crossed that line. Um, and I did it early before I, you know, I have you know, 800 cows or whatever. So, um, right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, and I think that that's one of the interesting things is that we, uh, our, our, our industry is characterized by practices that have been successful and, um, in creating healthy animals. And so the, so the animals haven't had to been, haven't, haven't had to be pushed to any large degree. And so we've allowed, um, basically inferior genetics to proliferate and, you know, maybe it's time, uh, for us as an industry to start pushing our animals a little bit more instead of, instead of propping them up. I mean, I'm not saying push them as hard as, you know, say I have, or, um, you know, to the, to the point where you're making them eat twigs and pine cones, like, like that's obviously not a good idea. Um, but, uh, but I think that, I think there is some room to, uh, you really question, uh, are, have we been babying our animals too much? Um, right. so, so, you know, I don't know. So my biggest, my biggest failures, I mean, I'm kind of in, I think one of my biggest failures right now, we, we, we have, I have yet to see the damage from this, uh, Pinecone abortion uh, issue, but um, definitely not going to let that happen again. <laughs> so, what are some things that you know now that you wish you knew when you started? Um. Well, uh, that a conventional uh, ranching background prepares you for almost nothing in a regenerative mm. paradigm. <laughs> I mean, wow, I, I think I can agree with that. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was, it's actually, you know, I, I was like, Oh no, I grew up in this. Like I'm a, you know, a fifth generation rancher, land manager. I can, you know, I'll be able, this will be fine. And then I'm just like, Oh, the cattle are out again. Oh, there's no ground on my hot wire. Oh, this, this cow is not in good shape. Oh, they're calving, but you know, now I'm moving them too frequently. Um, you know, like it's just, there's, it's you a can't, totally. You can't, you can't move a cow that just had a calf 12 hours ago. She won't be able to find it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, you're like carrying a calf around, you know, so, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it, the, the bottom line is just, it's a totally different game. It's a totally different game. And the people who will be able to play both games are the ones who are going to succeed, I think, in, 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 my, in my opinion. And imagine if you have a ranch that, that is half, um, uh, you know, regeneratively grazed and, and, and the hinterlands of the ranch are these massive pastures that can only be uh, uh, grazed, you know, you know, once or twice a year and you throw them all out there for a month and then you gather them up or, or whatever. So if you have that, like you have to have an animal that is sufficiently adapted to do well on that one half of the ranch that's regeneratively grazed, right? And then think about how much damn weight they'll put on when you turn them out in the big pasture, right? So there's, yeah. there's, just, there's just no, there's no downside to incorporating some degree of regenerative, regenerative practices. Like I was custom managing like 25 pairs for a guy last year and, um, I, and they were, you know, in that 12 to 1300 pound range. And I admittedly, I pushed them a little too hard and they started losing body condition. I had to back off and allow a little bit more selective grazing. And they started to put on a little bit more body condition before they went back to, to his place in uh, like June or July. And um, he called me about two months later. And, and I was a little bit embarrassed actually about the, the body condition that, that they had been returned in. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I did this. And 
And he called me right before winter and he said, Hobbs, I have, these cattle have never gone into the winter looking better than they look right now. Oh, wow. How funny. Yeah. And I, and I, said, well, I said, well, what do you, what do you think the difference is? And he said, well, these cattle eat like it's their job now. Yeah. Their behavior so their, their changed. Be their yeah. behavior had totally changed and they, you know, they had learned to eat competitively instead of lazily. And so it was like, kind of like a uh, boot camp for, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is like, it was almost like a boot camp for, for cattle. And even if you have these large animals, if you put them through like a regenerative learning process where they learn to eat non-selectively for like a month, even if they lose a little mm -hmm. body condition, once you turn them out into a, into a um, less, um, into a, a, a less rigorous uh, paradigm, they will put on weight so fast. So yeah. that, that, was, that was an interesting thing that I accidentally stumbled upon this year. So I want to know what have you done lately to sharpen your management acts and what's, what are you currently learning about that you're most excited about? What I've been doing lately to sharpen my, my management acts. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I'll tell you what, I, the, the thing that, that, that uh, I spent so much time over the last three years studying the regenerative aspect of it, of, of ranching that now, what I see as necessary is um, to expand the political and the land use and the networking aspect of management because it's almost like meta management, right? You can manage within the boundaries of your of your property, but then it becomes about managing the what's outside of the boundaries, and you do that by you know being parts of groups, by by speaking, by being. Um, uh, being on boards. And this is something that I've really learned from, um, my mentor, Jim Wood. He's like, he's on all of these boards. He's on the, he's on the phone all of the time to the point, like where his, his employees are frustrated with him because he's always on the phone so much, but he is the last remaining independent producer in the, the post Polina Valley. And that's because he's been so adept politically. So with regard to my management acts, like, um, what I've been really focusing on the last like four or five months in particular is um, building my network, building my brand and building my uh, sort of visibility, because that will give me the ability to grow and bring more land under my management so that I can then, you know, continue developing that that management um uh, as well, and uh, the, the, my uh, my management skills, and one you know one thing, um, uh, Brian, have you ever heard of a guy named Dwayne Lammers? Oh, I know that doesn't. Uh, I have, those. yeah, yeah. He, so he's worked with us a couple times, yeah, yeah. So he he's from South Dakota. He was in charge of the bison herd for uh, yeah. Dances with Wolves, and he is now managing the Hana Ranch in Maui. That's what I was gonna say. He's in Hawaii, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And he he said he said something. I was talking to him on the phone about a year ago, and he said something very interesting. It's like, well, when I got here in uh, the Hana Ranch, they were doing a ton of these regenerative practices, and the basic husbandry had been sort of abandoned. And so um, that's the, so. I mean, maybe this is a little bit in opposition to what I was saying earlier about conventional ranching not preparing you for regenerative ranching, but. Um, to some degree, 
um, I've really just been trying to make sure and shore up my basic husbandry, you know, like, um, and I just, all of the, um, like the amount of rectal exams I've had to do lately. Like I've never done really many of them, them before. And, 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 you know, a lot of people probably rely on veterinarians to do that. And maybe I'm, you know, um, lucky to have a little bit of guidance in that area, but, you know, basic husbandry, I've really done that to, um, tried to sharpen my, um, uh, my, my vet and my basic husbandry and, um, my infrastructure to really try to, to, uh, think farther into the future with my, my infrastructure. Um, and with regard to networking and being on boards and, you know, talking like to Oregon state soil scientists and stuff, one of the big things that I, that I really, really want to get, um, going on, particularly on my properties, even though they are leased property is data collection, because obviously the data is what's going to tell you if, if what you're doing is working or not. And incidentally, data is now the most important commodity on a ranch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll tell you, I, I actually had a really nice conversation about a, um, a couple of days ago with a guy named uh, Matthew Warnkin. And he runs a company in Australia called AgriProve, and they basically facilitate all of these uh, carbon credits um, that that are being distributed to farmers. He's working like 377 different uh, landowners in Australia that are being paid by the governments and by the state governments there for what they're doing. And they're not just doing carbon credits; they're doing biodiversity credits that are being purchased right. by the state. They are doing water retention credits that are being purchased by the state. And the, and the way that you get paid is um, by having the data to back this up. And so what he says is regenerative agriculture is all about funding model and your funding model is all about data. So, at, so in, or, in order to sharpen my management acts, I have really been focused on how I can um, uh, increase the amount of data that I have uh, recorded on the properties that I manage, manage and also has certainly um, uh, highlighted the importance of having a permanent land base so that you can control the management and then control the data. Not, not just control the management, but control the management long-term with a long-term stewardship vision. I think right. that's, I think that's really important to note is you know, to some of these new guys that are going out and, and trying to get a new land lease, you know, rather than just offering X dollars per acre, you know, you have to go out and you have to sell the landowner on, on what you're going to do to make that land more productive, to make it right. a better place for, for wildlife and for cattle and how you're going to manage that to benefit the overall environment. Right. And that's going to be one of the interesting things moving forward, especially on a leased land model is, is how are those, you know, the, the, say the rancher who leases, it does all the work to improve the ecology, improve, improve the organic matter uh, composition, improve the water retention, improve the biodiversity, improve the nitrogen cycle, you know, and who's going to get paid for that once those, those credits start rolling in, once those be, that becomes a viable source of income in the, in particularly in this country, you know, um, and what kind of, uh, contracts and financial um, instruments will have to be 
implemented in order to make that fair for everybody. I mean, certainly I have the, I'm like, well, I'm out here doing all the work. I certainly want to get some of that carbon credit money or some of that. Blah, right. blah, blah, you know? So that's going to be, uh, that's going to be a really interesting um, aspect as, as we move forward, particularly on with guys on, on lease, lease land, because I mean, if you owned a piece of land and somebody else was running it and they, and they were increasing the organic matter uh, content, and the government was paying for that, you'd be like, oh, okay, well, it's my land, so I should get some of that money, right? You know, so that that negotiation is going to be particularly interesting moving forward. Yeah. I, I can't disagree at all. I think that's really going to change um, a lot of land leasing and land use dynamic um, all across the country, anywhere where anywhere agriculture is practiced. So, um, I know we said an hour and a half and we're just about out of time. So Hobbs, you're the czar. You're yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. You are the, I want to know. It's a lot of great insight. Yeah. I want to know the first thing you're going to change. Hmm. 60 well, seconds, go. The first thing I'm going to change uh, is to, to get people to stop thinking about cattle as a, as a protein source and start thinking about them as an ecological necessity. You know, it's like um, the, the ruminants are the only thing on this planet that can, that can process cellulose at scale. And cellulose is what it, every, every plant, you know, trees are 90% cellulose. Grass is like 50 to 60% cellulose. You remove ruminants mm -hmm. from the from the the landscape there is nothing to process that cellulose to to make that carbon available for the next form of life and if people don't start realizing that cattle um, are the only tool that we can really use at scale in a world in the techno industrial paradigm that humans have created and now dominate to sort of put what nature expects within this matrix of humanity then we're going to be in real trouble and so um, you know we're they basically people got to recognize that ruminants and cattle they're an eco necessity first then a beef source second and I, actually there's one thing that that uh brian i don't hope you don't mind if i share this but you texted this to me like uh a couple of weeks ago and it's like you're like i think we need like four times the amount of cattle that we have currently to really just juice the carbon cycle to any uh, um uh useful degree right um and I thought that was really cool. And I think that, that that right there would totally shift the notion of what of, you know, people are like, we should eat less beef. And it's like, no, we should have more cattle grazed appropriately to the point where we have more beef than we could ever possibly eat. Like, that's what should happen, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so, if, and the only way to get there is to start viewing cattle as an eco necessity, as opposed to just a co commodity protein source. Perfectly put. Hobbs, yeah. it's it's been great, and I tell you, the time has flown by. So before we wrap up here, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Sure, absolutely. You can find uh, me, uh, at per particularly on TikTok. The handle is at Sisters Cattle Co. You can see the scintillating uh, exchanges between Red Hills Rancher and Sisters Cattle Co. there. Um, and, you, okay, you can also find our website uh, at www.sisterscattleco.com. I'm not much for Instagram. Uh, or Facebook yeah. really because on Facebook I just get yelled at by grain farmers and con and conventional ranchers and uh, on Instagram it's like you know just hey look at my child but um, <laughs> but TikTok forces you to give value you know nobody the algorithm will not uh, pump your pump your video if you haven't given people True. any value so, 
Yeah. So that's so that's really fantastic. And so yeah, I um, go to at Sisters Cattle Co on TikTok, um, and also at Red Hills Rancher to see what Brian is doing. Um, so there's a lot of good overlap there, and yeah, you can find us. You can if you have any questions, you want to email me at hello at sisterscattleco.com, um, and that's a uh, that's pretty much the extent of it. Awesome, Hobbs. It's been a great conversation. Um, CK. Wow, um, hour and a half kind of flew by, and I that was fun. Been, oh, it's been I a think, lot of fun, and yeah. I think this is gonna, I think, gonna lead into something. Yeah, a lot great. of people. I think we're gonna motivate some people on how to get started, and a little bit of hope for them too that it's not it's not as hard as it seems. Um, so I think this is gonna be a great, amazing first podcast for sure. Well, well thank right. you guys very much for having me on. It's been it's been a real pleasure, uh, CK. It's really nice to meet you and. Uh, Brian, I think this is the longest conversation you, you and I have had, so this is uh, it's been really nice. Hopefully, hopefully, first of, of many. Oh, I we're gonna have to have you back on again, Hobbs. I still yeah. had about two pages of questions I didn't quite get through. So, guys, I'm Red Hills Rancher, and with me for CK. Thanks for joining us today, and catch us next time on Ranching Reboot. <laughs>